Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast. Hello, thank you so much for joining us again this week for another episode of the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm really, really sorry. I've been missing in action. Sham El Sheikh. It's been hectic, hot, but it's beautiful. So I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa, and I'm super ready for us to have crazy conversations around this COP and find out what happens up next in terms of this negotiation. Now, the 27th UN Climate Summit is already underway till next week in Egypt coast to city of Sham el-Sheikh. It is very important for us to recognize that this is the 27th meeting of the parties in about 30 years. Let us think for a minute. Also, let us remember that Africa is the continent that contributes the least to the global emissions, just about 4%. And this includes South Africa mining its coal. Now, in 2015, in Paris, when the Paris Agreement was being passed, Africa was promised by the COP21 presidency, Laurent Fabius, that the continent would be recognized for its special needs and circumstances. But till today, it has been just a push and pull, and Africa is yet to get this promise honored. This year, the agenda still did not make it to the final agenda to be negotiated on, but instead of crying over spilled milk, yeah, this podcast will dig up experts who can look forward and within the continent to find solutions on how best Africa can tackle its climate crisis, knowing very well that help will never come from the West, but will come from within the continent. So today we talk to David Lasore on what this push so crucial for the continent is all about. David Lasore is a climatologist with over 28 years of experience working with the Department of Meteorological Services in Botswana. Lasore is also a former negotiator with the African Group of Negotiators on Climate Change and a former climate change lecturer at the University of Botswana. Now retired, Lasore works as an independent consultant on climate policy and climate science. David, thank you so much for speaking to us. What are these special needs and circumstances Africa has been pushing for, recognition for, all about? Well, for starters, let's go back to defining who Africa is in the realm of climate change. Africa is the only region that is especially mentioned in the scientific reports that guide the global action on climate change. So, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the scientific body, specifically mentions Africa as the most vulnerable of the continent and a group of nations. So Africa, therefore, immediately, therefore, has special needs so far as the science tells us. The science tells us and shows us that Africa is very vulnerable. Africa has the least capacity to adapt and, but at the same time, Africa lacks the technology and other means of implementation to migrate from fossil fuel-based activities. And we have lack of resources to do the adaptation in terms of making sectors resilient, like the water sector, the agricultural sector, and other sectors, tourism sectors and other sectors. So yes, Africa is a, is a special case. And uh, we need to look at Africa's special needs. But we also need to define those special needs. I think, therefore, it is important that we should always recall way back to the um, 
beginning of the climate change movement and the discussions on the global warming and climate change. And every time we try to move from the implementation of the, um, the global agenda on climate change under the Kyoto Protocol, for example, under the Climate Change Convention, apparently we ended up excluding, not by design, but by default, we excluded Africa from the implementation programs. And with time, we created the Green Climate Fund to try and address the inadequacies under the, the GEF. But again, we are still facing a lot of problems in the implementation and involvement of the African developmental agenda. So Africa still remains a, a special needs and we're worried that unless we change the modus operandi, and review some of these instruments that we put into place, Africa's special case will never be addressed. Would you want to elaborate further on some of these, these special circumstances that the African continent is finding itself in that will be aggravated by climate change? Well, remember, a lot of our people are still on rural livelihoods. There's no reason why Africa should be moving people from rural locations into urban settings because that's not the solution to climate change. In fact, it would aggravate the effects of climate change because science already tells us that a lot of emissions come from urban and cities and mega cities, etc. Now, therefore, the livelihood is what makes it all precarious because people are farmers. They are very closely associated with the land, the natural resource base, this is the felt products, as well as the simple agricultural practices. It's not a mechanized agricultural format for most of the instances. And therefore, those are the special sort of circumstances in which Africa finds itself. We have a lot of small and medium enterprises and SMEs, and these are the people who become vulnerable when the climate extreme event comes in. And therefore, we really need to try and address them, help them, and try and uh, make them much more resilient to climate change. Well, Africa is not a meeting. It's only a meeting less than about 5% of the global emissions. And therefore, you know, even if we cut all our emissions, we're so insignificant that uh, it wouldn't matter. But what is important for us is the adaptation issue. And, and what role do effective institutions, both local and national, have in helping society's ability to respond to climate change? I always uh, say if you don't have a drawdown capacity, then of course you're not going to be able to benefit from any actions to address climate change. So for example, it's not the governments who are supposed to implement the projects and programs that will reduce emissions and promote adaptation. Governments can put in policies and strategies to guide the adaptation goals and set the adaptation goals, etc. But it is the individual farmer, the individual header of the cattle, the small and medium enterprise, the lady who is selling 
some vegetable produce or some fish that she caught from a river basin or from the ocean that is vulnerable. Therefore, we need to create institutions. Number one, institutions that are going to develop resources. Resources here, and I sometimes I hate that the emphasis these days is on finance. While finance is important, but I think there's a lot of other resources that are necessary. Information is a resource. People need to be informed about where the climate extreme is and uh, when it's coming so that then they can decide on whether or not they relocate or what are the adaptation measures or strategies that can put in place. Remember, when it comes to a push, it is the individual who decides that I am going to evacuate or move no matter how much government will tell them move. And information is very important. Now, we don't have the satellite information and we don't have a lot of platforms. That technology, those information devices, those information from those platforms, in most cases resides with the developed countries. And we're asking therefore, give us that information so that we can interpret it into the local, languages and transmit to the local communities. That's number one. But for that information to come through as a resource, we need therefore to be able to absorb that information, decipher it and localize it and make sure that it is textured into small packages that, that can be consumed by the local, local communities and groups and, and, and communities and villages. Now, the other thing is, even if you were to do projects, climate change projects, you know, a lot of people don't understand what climate change is, what is a climate change project. We're used to other environments like waste and that and pollution. But climate change is just a little, little dynamic, little... Uh, animal and it needs special training programs. So we need to build those capacities for the private sector. A lot of our private sector in Africa, small as it may be, do not understand concepts like global warming potential, carbon caps, carbon efficiency caps, etc. We need to tell them and again, we need to develop the policies in place and the strategies, not only at the central government level, but also at the local level, at the sub-national sub level. Finally, I think we also need institutional for drawing down on the technologies and other resources, including finance. It would be ideal for us to have the finance drawn down at the national level instead of at a group level. So, for example, the differentiation of uh, of having resources available and be, being told oh, any country will, can apply doesn't serve Africa well because Africa comprises of 54 countries and we're all differentiated. Some have the capacity, some are not having the capacity, some are prepared, some are not adequately prepared. And it all differences, all, all of us are different. And therefore we need to sort of uh, provide that information and build that capacity for individual, all countries in Africa to draw down on these resources, the information, technology, and the finance. Mm. 
Speaking of capacity, David, COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated that Africa has the capacity it needs. We saw youth in our universities, especially in Kenya, come up with innovations. And not just to forget, there's a time back we had this Malawian boy who built a windmill to power his family's home, you know. So that, you know, not to even forget that Kenya is home to MPESA. So it doesn't mean that there is no capacity in the continent. Doesn't Africa also need to do its own assignment in investing in this huge youthful capacity to align with its development plans instead of waiting on the West to pass on this information? Well, there's different ways of uh, driving change. One could be from a bottom-up approach. The other one is a top-down approach. I'm not going to say one is better than the other. Yes, government role should be to put in the policies, the means of implementation, the, uh, the, the core sort of setting to allow um, innovation and research and hunger for information uh, prevail. But at the same time, you need to also have the young people come to the party. You know, as the saying goes, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. People are talking about you, you're not there. So, uh, young people sometimes still don't understand where to start in terms of climate change. They hear about it, but they don't see the door. They see this four-cornered um, building that looks beautiful and it's enticing, but they don't see the door, how to come in. And I think that our dialogue, therefore, should focus on how do we bring in these young people into this? Because the millennials, <laughs> they have a different way of looking at things. They are very up on things like social media. Let's allow them to drive innovation using social media. And I think we can achieve a lot. There's a lot of information on the social media, but sometimes they just need to be guided. And I think we can build a capacity building facilitation process to ensure that these groups of very energy that Africa should be tapping on is well facilitated to benefit from and push the Africa's agenda 2063. Now, David, each time Africa goes to COP, despite having a common position, the continent is always left out in the end due to the lack of political representation. A representation that is very crucial at the end of the two weeks of negotiation. And this plays a huge role in terms of uniting the continent's push for its, you know, special needs and recognition as more than 30 African countries negotiate under least developed country, a group that was a key opposer when it came to the last, the, the COP in Madrid. Is it time that the African Union, you know, be at the center stage of this negotiation to push politically for the African common positions? Yes, I think uh, there's already discussion around issues of getting the AU becoming a registered member of the climate change global movement. We remember you need to do that because we're stronger together. We can derive a lot of guidance from the highest body organ in Africa, the AU, in driving the aspirations. Besides, remember, AU has a, has a vision, 2063 vision. And you need to therefore have the AU put in and avail itself as an institution to drive that vision, to achieve the goals set out in that vision. And um, so I'm hoping that, uh, yes, the AU needs to 
come in and hopefully therefore guide Africa's participation. We are common but differentiated in Africa and it is that uh, differentiation that should allow us to harness these energies in our differences to make sure that we move and attain the Africa we want. And achieving the Africa we want requires money. As Africa has to develop its infrastructure, power its industries, invest in early warning, just to mention a few. Yes, African countries are many and have different needs. And the same case applies when it comes to attracting resources. Some countries will attract more resources, countries like Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa, but there are some other countries that will not attract the same amount of resources. How best can African nations access climate financing? Perhaps we could learn from what we did under the sister convention, the Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Stratospheric Ozone, the ozone layer, the Montreal Protocol. What that convention did was, and was not just by design, it, you know, we had to fight for it at a meeting in 1990. I think it was 1995 in Nairobi, the Nairobi meeting, I think it was, if my memory calls well. We decided to give instruction to the multilateral fund because the multilateral fund was the one in charge. It was like a GCF for, for the ozone action. We gave in the instruction to the multilateral fund to say, go and build the institutions in each and every country. So what they did was they allocated money for each country to strengthen the institutions in the countries. In some of our African countries, the desk that is responsible for climate action comprises of maybe one or two people. In other countries with bigger sort of readiness, there might be five to 10 people the big question is, is that enough to drive a big thing like climate change? So we need the institutional strengthening because if we don't do that, then first of all, from the AU perspective and vision, we will not achieve the Africa we want because we will leave others behind. From a sustainable development goal perspective, whatever you're going to do, if we're going to, not going to build those and strengthen the institutions because most cases, the institutions are already there, so you're not actually building, you're just strengthening the institution. So my proposal is, let's ask the, uh, the COP, give guidance to the GCF to release money for vulnerable countries and the, the least developed countries of the world, at least to develop the institutional strengthening capacities and capacities that are needed. And, and I think in that way, at least then we can start having people being able to apply the Paris rule book or the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement because we're going to have to report, we're going to have to do peer review of methodologies in country. And um, that's going to take a lot of human resources and institutional resources and time. And therefore, we need to be helped in uh, institutional strengthening. So my proposal is, instead of having the money sit at GCF, let it come down to help Africa to take part in the global action on climate change. Should the money be in grants or loans? No, it should be, it should be uh, grants, period. It should be grants. 
you can't put any more pressure on Africans. <laughs> There's so many competing, especially post-COVID. It has to be granted, period. And that is all we have for you today. Let's catch up again from the busy Sham El Sheikh. And I'm really sorry that I've been missing in action. Please do not forget to head to www.africaclimateconversations.com and www.africaclimatenews.com. So we officially have two websites, the africaclimateconversations.com and the africaclimatenews.com. In the meantime, Swahiri, I'm Sophie Mbogwa. Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast.